0: Please pray with me uh, before we read God's word. Our God and Father, we, we come before you again and we need, we need you. We need to hear from you. We need your word. We need your grace. We need your son and his work in our lives. And we pray, Father, that as we read Ruth and as we think about this passage of scripture, that you would feed us on Jesus and that we would find our our satisfaction, our fulfillment, that we would find life in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Again, our scripture reading is from Ruth chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and, after, and and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. And all that belong to Kilian and Mahlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. Well, I was at a wedding yesterday, and I was thinking about what it means to be a husband And I was thinking about what it means to be a man. And one of the things I realized is that our culture's picture of manhood, it actually runs in in two opposite streams. On the one hand, you have the men of Duck Dynasty, right, with their long ZZ top beards, right, men with ATVs and guns. And that's one picture of manhood. But then on the other hand, you actually have the opposite extreme. You have what has been termed right, the metrosexual. Right? Do you know that term? Right? Those are, are, are men who are meticulously groomed uh, down to their pedicured feet. Right? Just everything uh, is, is neatly done. In fact, I, I, I watched a little bit of a recent documentary on what it means to be men, and I only got two-thirds of the way through, but those entire two-thirds were about grooming. All of it. It was all about mustaches, beards, and hair. Two-thirds of this documentary on what it means to be a man. But even in the church, I think we don't always know how to distinguish uh, truth from error here. What does it really mean to be a man? You know, part of our culture says, right, if you can drink and smoke and fight and cuss, then you're a real man. And we know that's not true, But we don't always know how to respond. I mean, what do you say? The Bible actually is the story of the failure of men to be men. Sorry, guys. If you don't believe me, right, just look where it starts. Uh, God places a man and a woman in the Garden of Eden. He commands the man to work and keep it. And the word keep there means to guard, to protect and one day, a talking snake comes into the garden, which should have been the first clue that something wasn't right. And this snake rejects God's word and tempts the woman to disobey, which she does. Where's the man this whole time? Well, Genesis 3.6 actually tells us. It says the woman gave some fruit to her husband who was with her. So where is Adam when a talking snake walks into the garden, contradicts God's word, and leads his wife into disobedience? He's standing there, watching the whole thing unfold. Adam is supposed to be the guardian of the garden, but instead he plays the role of a passive spectator. Or consider the book of Ruth. We saw early on in the book of Ruth, there's this man whose name is Elimelech, which means God is my king. And this man failed to trust God, his king. as a result, he left his God-given home. He settled down in the pagan town of Moab, and he received God's judgment for his rebellion. And he left his family in jeopardy, far from home physically and far from God spiritually. Then we come to the passage we're in this morning in Ruth chapter 4. And what we find is is Boaz stepping in. Boaz steps in to put right what other men had put wrong. And in so doing, Boaz really gives us a a beautiful picture of the sacrificial love of Jesus. Now, in one sense, everything I'm going to say this morning applies equally to men and women. Uh, We're all called to be conformed to the image of Christ. And yet I think there's somehow that this applies especially to men as men. You know, guys, as as we go through, I want you to think about what it means to be a a man as reflected in your Savior. So we're going to look at this passage under three headings, and they're not the three headings in your bulletin. I'm sorry. So if you look at the outline in your bulletin, they're basically the same, but the the words are different. Same ideas, but different words. So I'll give it to you right now. You can write it down if you want. Um, We're going to look at the passage under three headings. Uh, Taking the initiative in service to others, point one. Accepting the cost of service to others, point two. And getting the reward of service to others. So taking the initiative, accepting the cost, and getting the reward. Okay, so taking the, the initiative in service to others. In, in chapter 3, we saw Ruth ask Boaz to marry her. He's a relative of her dead husband. And in that culture, the law was actually that the brother of the dead husband, if he died without any children, the brother of the dead husband was to marry his dead brother's widow. Which, again, would seem awkward to us, but was, was part of that culture And he was to raise up a child in his dead brother's name. Because Boaz is a relative, Ruth asks him to do this. To be what they called a redeemer. And Boaz told Ruth that that he would do it, but there was a closer relative than he, and that person was first in line, and, and so they had some things they needed to work out first. But what's most important is actually what Boaz does next. Once Boaz hears in chapter 3 that something needs to be done for Ruth, he doesn't rest. As Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, mentions in chapter 3, verse 18, the last verse of chapter 3, he doesn't rest until it's done. And he doesn't wait around for somebody else to, to, to figure things out, right? He takes the initiative. He gathers the right people so that he can hold court at the gate, uh, so the gate was where legal proceedings happened. So he's, he's, he's bringing a courtroom of people together so the business can be dealt with that morning. And he doesn't sit around, he doesn't wait for somebody to, else to act, but he takes initiative to get things done. Right? Unlike Adam, who, who passively watched his wife be taken in by a talking serpent, Boaz actively moves to care for a woman who's in need. I I said uh, to my son Thomas one time that to be a leader and to be a a man uh, was to be first in what's hard and last in what's good. First in what's hard and last in what's good. And he reminded me of the words of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia who said to be a king was to be first in the charge and last in the retreat. See, a godly King, which Boaz's great grandson David would be, so Boaz is kind of like royalty, not quite, but pre royalty. Uh, A godly king or a godly man of any kind, right, must be one who doesn't sit around and wait for others to act, but but takes the initiative to do hard things. And this quality of, of being willing to step up and move and act on behalf of others, right, this is especially true of Jesus in the gospel. Uh, Jesus is is God come in human form to redeem us, to save us from our sin and God's wrath. Boaz was responding to Ruth when his flurry of activity began, uh, but Jesus didn't wait for us to ask to be redeemed when he came into the world. He didn't wait to see if we would come up with a plan of redemption and then he could jump on board. Jesus saw our helpless condition, he saw our sin and our misery and our condemnation, and he acted. He came into the world to relieve us, to give us life. And that's what we see Boaz doing here. He takes initiative in his service to Ruth. <clears throat> he doesn't wait for somebody else to handle all the details. Well, Boaz doesn't only take the initiative, but he also accepts the cost. Right? He accepts the cost of service to others. Uh, when Boaz gets to the gate that morning, and he presents things to the nearer relative, to this nearer redeemer, we get a little bit of a surprise because Boaz doesn't say, uh, Ruth is seeking a redeemer according to God's law in Deuteronomy. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, is selling a plot of land. Well, being a redeemer in Israel did mean more than just raising up children. Uh, It also meant keeping the God-given land in the family. Uh, God, uh, you may know, he had assigned each tribe of Israel specific plots of land as their inheritance. And because God had given it, the land was not to be sold. It was always considered his land that he had assigned to specific people. It wasn't to be sold, but it was to stay in those families forever. Uh, That meant if a family became poor and had to sell their land, a close relative was supposed to step up and, and buy it, redeem it, and that way, not only would the family uh, have the money they need, but the land would stay within the tribe, right? Because a close relative bought it. So the nearer relative, on hearing about this land, he immediately says in verse 4, That sounds great. I'll do it. Yes. I'll take the land. You see, this guy jumps at the chance to get his hands on Elimelech's land. But then Boaz explains some of the details of the deal. So look at verse 5. Boaz says, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, now interestingly, actually, there's no law that says what Boaz says. There's nowhere are land and widows tied together in this way. Uh, There there are laws about the redeeming of land, and there are laws about the redemption of widows, but there are no laws that actually put the two together. But Boaz, as we've seen him, is a man who follows the law, but he's not limited by it. And, And what I mean by that is he goes above and beyond what the law requires. We saw that back in chapter 2 when, when uh, uh, Ruth wanted to glean in his field. He not only allowed her to glean in his field, but he actually allowed her to glean right with his reapers. And he had them take some of their uh, grain and drop it on the ground so she could pick it up. Right? He went above and beyond what the law required. He obeys both the letter and the spirit of the law. And so Boaz is probably saying, this is what would be Right? Ruth also is a part of this family. She's a, a part of the remnant of Elimelech's household. And to take Elimelech's land without caring for his widowed family would be mercenary. So if you're going to do the right thing, you need to not only take the land, but you need to take Ruth as well. Boaz is saying a truly righteous man right, would not only benefit from Elimelech's death, but care for Elimelech's family in the aftermath. And this near-redeemer, right, suddenly he changes his tune in verse 6. He says, I can't do it. The cost is too high. Now, one commentator lists three potential costs. I mean, what is the cost to this guy? There are actually a couple um, Three, uh, again, one commentator lists three of them. First, there's the cost to his, his bank book, right? This financial cost. The land itself would be a financial gain for this guy. Extra land means a greater harvest, greater gain. But then you factor in Ruth and the net gain probably becomes a net drain for him. And so that's, that's cost number one. The second is actually maybe even bigger. There's the potential cost to his name and to his posterity. If this guy marries Ruth and she only gives him one child, that child would carry on Elimelech's family name. Right? Remember that he's marrying her to raise up a child in the dead man's name. So if he marries her and she has one child, that child is not his child, technically. It's Elimelech's or, or Malan's child. With only one child, that means that this man, if he only has that one, would in effect die childless. His inheritance would go to the family of Elimelech. Right? By seeking to perpetuate the name of the dead, as verse 5 talks about, his own name could actually disappear. So there's this potential cost. There's this potential cost to the, his bank book. Right? There's this potential cost to his name or his posterity. And then there's a third cost, and that's to his reputation. Uh, remember, Ruth is a Moabite, and as we've said, uh, the Israelites didn't think too highly of Moabites in that day. And if he raises up this half Moabite child, his inheritance would fall into the hands of a Moabite. And what would that mean for his family name in Israel? Or would his family always be outcasts, right, for the rest of their lives, sort of on the fringe of society because, oh, they're the ones who married the Moabites. And so this guy counts the costs. He thinks about these things, and he says, no, no, it's just too great. I can't do it. He is unwilling to... to uh, sacrifice of himself to serve another, right? The cost is too high. Uh, another commentator, Ian Duguid, says of this guy, he was interested in ministry to the poor, helping Naomi by buying the land, only if there was a payoff for himself and his family. But costly ministry without any personal payoff? Forget it, Duguid says. Now, maybe we shouldn't be too hard on this guy. I mean, his role in the story is, is simply as a foil for Boaz. Right? I mean, uh, Boaz's godliness is seen in contrast to this person's unwillingness. This guy's unwilling to, to pay the price of caring for the impoverished widowed Moabite. So Boaz, But Boaz, in contrast, is actively seeking that privilege. He's willing to pay whatever price there is to care for Ruth. This guy backs off. Where Boaz steps up. And of course, similarly, right, in light of humanity's cosmic failure, right, in light of Adam's failure to be the man that God had called him to be, we see Jesus step up to redeem fallen humanity. He accepts the cost of service to us. And as I was speaking at uh, the, the wedding yesterday, I was. Considering what it means to be a man, right, as that is exemplified in Ephesians 5.25. You know, Ephesians 5.25, it's where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, just think about that for a little bit. A lot, actually. Uh, think about that a lot. But, but Jesus is, is the preeminent picture of self-denying sacrificial love. He's the standard of what it looks like to deny yourself and lay down your life for someone else. And then husbands, as men and as as leaders in the home, are called to imitate that. You know, when I'm willing to put myself on the line for another human being, when when I'm willing to say no to my own desires for the good of another person, that is when I am am truly masculine, right? That's what masculinity looks like, putting yourself on the line, saying no to your own desires for the sake of someone else. It's not when you grow a big beard or or drive a big truck or, or shoot a big gun. There's nothing wrong with those things, right? But that's not what it means to be a man, when I can deny myself for the good of another person. When I refuse to help someone in need because it's, well, it's too hard, or what's in it for me, then I'm actually abdicating my manhood in that moment. The Bible really says the same thing about all leadership, doesn't it? All leadership is like this. You know, we often mistake leadership as having people under us to do our bidding. Right? That's what we think leadership is. If you're a leader, you have minions, right? But as Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, "Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." Leadership is about service. Christianity is about service. Manhood is about service. You know, one of the great lies about masculinity, again, is that a real man is one who has people serving him. You know, he comes in and he sits down on his couch and his wife waits on him hand and foot. But being a man is the very opposite of that. Right? It's not about being served according to Jesus. It's about sacrificially serving. We see this in Boaz. He is one who is ready to pay the cost, whatever it is, to care for this woman in need. So we've seen in Boaz that, that he takes the initiative in service to others, he accepts the cost of service of, to others, and then he, he gets the reward of service to others. You know, what, what is Boaz's chief concern in all of this? He, he tells us in verses 5 and 10, he says his, his real concern is to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. His chief concern is not for himself. His chief concern is for his relative Elimelech. What is the nearer relative's chief concern? His chief concern is his own name. You know, what if Ruth only has one child and, and his own name is, is cut off? Or or what if he has children by Ruth, but the family is forever tainted with a reputation of being Moabites? He's concerned about his own name. Boaz's concern is Elimelech's name. This guy's concern is his own name. What's the irony? What's this man's name? We have no idea, right? His name has been lost to history. In fact, there's this really odd thing in the text. In in chapter 4, verse 1, I think it's verse 1, yeah, verse 1, the ESV has Boaz say to this closer relative, Turn aside, friend. And, and there's a long history of translating it friend, um, going back to, to Latin and, and Greek. But really, Boaz in Hebrew uses two nonsense words, uh, kind of like the words hodgepodge or hocus-pocus, right? They're, they're, separately, they're, they don't mean anything. Um, and the best translation that people have come up with is Boaz calls him Mr. So-and-so. Boaz calls the man, a relative of his, Mr. So-and-so. You know, the writer of Ruth is, is so amazing. This, the, the writer of Ruth loves wordplay. We've seen that throughout the book. And right here, he refuses to write down this man's name. And instead, he calls him Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so wants to protect his name, and as a result, his name is lost to history. Here's what Jesus says, isn't it, right? If anyone wishes to save his life, he will lose it. Mr. So-and-so tries to save his name, and he loses it. Boaz seeks to perpetuate the name of Elimelech, and he is the one who is remembered. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will find it. Again, this is exemplified in the cross, isn't it? I mean, consider Jesus in Philippians 2. In fact, even turn there. Turn to Philippians 2 if if you can. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8 say this Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Paul caused uh, the Philippians to uh, to put others first, and he caused them to do that because Christ put us first. his again is the costliest of sacrifices, and we are to imitate. Him, but, but Paul doesn't end there in verse 8. He keeps going in verse 9. He says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ took the initiative to come into the world to give himself for our sins, and God rewarded him by raising him from the dead and giving him a greater name than that of Boaz. Right? The name that's above every name. The costliest sacrifice, the most costliest sacrifice made for the sin of the world, leads to the greatest name, the Lord of heaven and earth. And what are the implications of all of this, right? as we Okay, we've seen Boaz, this godly man who takes the initiative to, to, to sacrifice of himself for the good of another person, and God rewards him for that. We've seen Jesus, right, who comes into the world, who takes the initiative to, to care for us in our lowly condition, to die for us, to give of himself so that we might have life, and God exalts him and gives him the name that is above every name. Well, what are the implications of that? Let me, let me just point out a couple things briefly. There are probably lots of things that we could talk about. But when we see that the costly love of Jesus for us, first, right, we, should, we should marvel at that love, shouldn't we? I mean, he was willing to seek our good, the forgiveness of our sins, and reconciliation to the Father and the hope of the resurrection to come at great cost to himself, even separation from the Father at the cross. We should marvel at such love. You know, we're not willing to let somebody cut in front of us in the grocery line, but Jesus was willing to take the punishment for our sin and rebellion. Right? That's amazing. That's amazing. We should marvel at that. That's worship, right? And two, we should, rest, we should rest in his love. You know, whatever outward, your outward circumstances might look like, we are in the hands of our Redeemer. He has purchased his people out of the grip of sin and death, and he's made us right with our Father. Uh, we don't have to worry any longer about how, how can I be right with God, or how can I be forgiven by God, or, or what do I need to do for God to love me? We don't need to worry about that, not because those aren't important questions. They are very important questions, but we don't need to worry about it because Jesus has done all in the cross. He has purchased us by his blood. We belong to him. He's going to take care of us. We can rest in his love. Then, of course, as we, as we marvel at his love and we, and we rest in his love, we're also called to imitate that love, aren't we? Well, what does that look like? Well, for, for all Christians, particularly for, for men and particularly for leaders, we're called to take initiative, aren't we? We're called to be first in what's hard and last in what's good. Uh, when you see a problem, right, you, you, you seek to fix it. You, don't, you see something wrong in the world, you move to act. You don't sit around and wait for, for somebody else to do it. Now, taking initiative is scary. It, it really is. It, it's scary because what if we're wrong? What if we do the wrong thing? Right? What, what if we make a bad decision? What if we fail? And we're not Jesus, right? We don't know everything. We do need input from others. We need the wisdom of many people. We need to pay attention. We need to open our eyes. But, but really, the not knowing, that's one of the things that makes leading so hard, isn't it? Sometimes we lead not knowing exactly what the best thing is, but, but we obey God's word and we trust God's spirit and we put ourselves on the line in faith. Of course, we're not just called to take the initiative in service to others. We're also called to accept the cost of service to others. Following Jesus is costly. Remember that just as Jesus died for us, the whole Christian life is about dying to ourselves. In order that we might give life to others. What does dying to self look like? I mean, that's such a big, lofty concept. Dying to self means saying no to our desires no to our wants, no to even sometimes our needs, right, when I'm, when I'm willing to say no, I mean, think of a really mundane example, a really simple example. When I'm willing to say no to, to checking my email or reading my text or doing one more thing on my phone, right, because I need to be present with my boys, that's a, that's a little picture of, of saying that's hard for me, right, I mean, just point that out, right? That's hard, right? Because you have your phone and you want to look something up and you're thinking you would think, go to your phone. Or you, want to, you, you hear the little ding of the email and you want to go to your phone, right? And there's this, draw, this pull, right, that you want to do it. Right? Well, to, to, to deny yourself in that moment is to say, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to be here with these people. Right? These people are more important than whatever is on that phone. And that's just, that's one little way. You may not think that's self-denial, but it, but it is. You're denying this desire, this impulse. You're saying no for someone else. That's a that's little self-sacrifice, right? Now, now, um, obviously, denying yourself could be much larger. Those are the kinds of things we experience every day, right? There, there are larger things. Denying yourself could be bigger. It could mean giving up a day to serve someone in need, right? That's a large way of saying I'm going to give up my time, I'm going to give up my energy, I'm going to give up whatever it is that I'm giving up so that I can spend time serving others in some specific way. But it begins with the little things, right? Being willing to do those big things is great, but, but what does your daily life look like? Are you consistently seeking to say no to your own desires so that you can love the people around you? That's, that's hard. I think that's even harder than the, quote, big things sometimes. It is for me anyway. How do we imitate his love? Well, we, we take initiative in service to others. We accept the cost of service to others. We deny ourselves. And, and we look to the reward of service to others. You know, it's, it's in those moments when we say no, when I say no to me, right, that Jesus meets us and we begin to find real life in him. It, it's not just that our name lives on, uh, but that we find life Right? We're free to actually serve anonymously because we find life in Jesus. You know, Paul says in Philippians 3.10 that he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. See, Jesus died and then rose, and if we want to know Christ and his resurrection power, which sounds great, right? I want to know his resurrection power. We like the power part. If I want to know Christ and his resurrection, according to Paul, we have to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, right? That's how you know the resurrection power of Jesus. We must die to ourselves if we want to draw near to him and find life. If we save our lives, we will lose them. But if we die to ourselves, we will experience new life now in Jesus. That, that's the real reward for which we hope. Experiencing the resurrection life in fellowship with Jesus now, internally, and in eternity, Right? externally. Can you do that? Right? Can, can you take initiative to, to give of yourself for the good of other people? If that's hard for you, which it is, that's hard. It's hard in the little ways. It's hard in the big ways. If that's uh, hard or distasteful or maybe even a little scary, right? Re- remember this. Keep reminding yourself of this. Uh, not, not, uh, yeah. Keep reminding yourself of the one who first died for you, right? That let His loving sacrifice melt your heart. It's not a way of guilting you into doing good. See, Jesus died for you. You need to go die for somebody else. And that's not what I'm saying, right? That, 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 that's, that guilt, that won't work. But there's another way of doing that where you look at Jesus' sacrifice and you let his love melt you. Right? You let his love work on your heart until you find the motive to go and love others, until you find the motive out of gratitude for his love, out of uh, worship. Of Him, you find that motive to take up your cross and to follow Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you uh, for His sacrificial, self denying love on our behalf, that He was willing to come into the world, to step into this world, to give us life. And we pray that we would that we would be melted by that, that our hearts would be softened by that, that we would find joy and delight in that. And out of that joy and out of that delight and out of that, out of gratitude for what he's done, we would be driven to show that same love to those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.